Well, with our text tonight, we're going to be officially halfway through the book of Genesis, which for some of us, we're, we're whistling because it's like, this has been a year and a half. They're like, oh my gosh, we're only halfway through, but we're going to finish by the end of this year. It's my guarantee to you, all right? All right, Lord willing, all right, Lord willing. Um, but as we're halfway through, all right, here's what should be happening. If you've taken like an English lit class, you should recognize that like there's trends and themes as you work your way through a book that begin to stand out. And as we're halfway through, we should recognize that there's some trends and themes that are popping out through this story of Genesis. Now, I've done some pre-work for us. You don't have to like guess and estimate about what these themes might be. Here's some of the themes that we've seen. We've seen that the threat and severity of sin in the book of Genesis. All right, here's some examples. The fall and the flood. What happens in the garden? Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. Sin enters into this world. It spreads Evil and wickedness are all throughout the land to the extent that God has to send the flood. The severity and threat of sin is real. We see that in the book of Genesis. We also see the necessity of grace and faith. In the midst of the sin, in Genesis chapter 3, what do we get? We get a great promise that there's going to be a redeemer Our relationship has been broken with the living God, but he's promised that there's going to be a redeemer that he sends into the world and that he's going to make our relationship with God right through him. We see that there's a covenant that's made, and this is a covenant where God puts all the responsibility on himself. Literally, you see animals that are split in half. And usually whenever this happens in human history, both parties of the covenant walk through, committing themselves to one another, saying, if I don't hold my side of the covenant, then I will be like these animals. But in that passage, what happens? Only God goes through. So there's great faith, there's great grace that we see in the book of Genesis that God's gonna tease out throughout the rest of scripture. But then we also see the character and goodness of God. And we find this last theme in our text tonight. And here's how I want us to phrase it for our purposes tonight. Here's the phrase. God is consistent yet unpredictable. God is consistent yet unpredictable. Here's what I mean. God is consistent, meaning his character never changes. This is incredible news for us. That God is always the same and unchanging in his character is great news for us because it means that there's always going to be fairness and justice that we get with God. Yet at the same time, he is always abounding in faithful love. So good. And here's what I mean by God is unpredictable. It means that you could never imagine how God would demonstrate his power and goodness to us. God is consistent yet unpredictable. We've seen this through the book of Genesis up to this point, especially with the story of Abraham. We saw that God was perfectly faithful to Abraham, didn't we? This this is like basically the last 
two months that we've been, like our whole entire application is like, God is faithful. God is faithful. You can trust him. His character remains the same. He has followed through. Like that's been basically my application to you for the last two months. But yet we also see that God is unpredictable. The means by which he's fulfilling his promises that he's given to us through scripture are out of this world, never what we would have imagined kind of decisions. Who does he choose to be the patriarch of our faith? Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, when they are called out, are in their 60s and 70s. And they're the most unlikely candidates that you would choose. They're not like these incredibly virtuous people. They're not this really ambitious people that would stand out. They're, they're just normal people that are old. <laughs> and God chooses them as the people that would ultimately give birth to his people that would ultimately bring Jesus into this world and fulfill his promise. God is consistent yet unpredictable. And these qualities of God are also featured in tonight's story with Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and Esau are the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 24, this incredible love story. If you want to like go get the first rom-com, then go to Genesis chapter 24. I mean, it's just the who's who of stories. I mean, like Isaac and Rebecca, when they meet, it's like, I love you, you love me, let's get married, let's like just bounce off into the prairies, you know, like, like that's what is happening in Genesis chapter 24, it's just incredible. And so they have these two sons, Jacob and Esau, that we are going to look at tonight. In tonight's passage, we get their birth story, but we also get an introduction to their complicated relationship, all right? And what we find in the midst of all of it is that God is consistent yet unpredictable. So here's what I want us to do, all right? We'll look at this story in those two parts, the birth and the birthright stories that happen in our passage tonight. Each part will consider how God is both consistent and unpredictable. And here's how we'll end. We're going to end by seeing how all of this points to Jesus, I'm going to bring it full circle for us, all right? Because I believe that's what Moses' intent is, is he's looking forward to Jesus. From our position, we get to look back at Jesus with even greater clarity than those that were writing the story. And here's my prayer. My prayer as we do all this is that we would, it would stir in us a deep affection and gratitude and appreciation for God's character and his goodness towards us. Just as we prayed, that there would just be like this overwhelmed sense of like, oh my gosh, God is just so good to me. That's what I want for us. It's my prayer. So for us to do that, we need to begin where Moses begins, which is the birth story, all right? So Cherish read this for us. I'm not gonna rehash and read through the whole entire part of that story again, but let me recap for us, all right? So this is the beginning of the family records of Isaac. That's the son of Abraham and Sarah. And so Isaac took Rebekah as his wife when he was 40 years old. We see that they run into a problem in this particular passage, though. And what is the, what is the problem? Infertility. 
See this in verse 21. The very beginning says this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Now, pause there before you read the last half of the verse because what we are seeing here is a pattern that's forming. We're seeing a pattern that is beginning to take place not only in the beginning of Scripture, but what we'll see is throughout the remaining of Scripture. What we saw with Abraham and Sarah is that he, God chose a couple that had infertility issues that was well advanced in years, and what they were to do was to bear a child of promise. Now, God does that in some pretty supernatural ways as we have unpacked in the stories before this. But here again, we see God chooses a couple with infertility issues to accomplish his purposes again. And look, this is not a coincidence. If you think back to that story in Genesis chapter 24, here's what happens. Abraham sends his servant to go find his son Isaac, a wife from his pl- the place that he originally came from, the land of his ancestors, the servant prays, God, would you do this specific thing to show me the woman that you have for my, ser- my master Isaac? And God answers the prayer to a T with Rebecca. Rebecca is God's chosen wife for Isaac. And so it's no coincidence that they are struggling with infertility because this is God's ordained couple. And what happens? How do, how do we see God work in this? Isaac prays. Isaac prays. Rebecca is barren. Isaac can't do anything about it. And so what does he do? He prays. And at the end of 21, here's how we see God work. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, conceived. All right, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God is consistent in showing his power through weakness. God is consistent in showing his power through weakness. That's what we see here. We saw it with Abraham and Sarah. Now he's doing it again with Isaac and Rebekah, these people of weakness that from their own means can't have a son and God's people are supposed to come from them. The Redeemer is supposed to come from them. But here we are in this place of infertility once again. What are they going to do? How's God going to come through? What do we see happen? His power is displayed through weakness. Now, this isn't just for Genesis. What we're going to see is that this is God's pattern throughout the rest of redemptive history. Just think about a few characters with me, all right? Who does God choose to liberate his people from Egypt? He chooses a man with confidence issues and a speech impediment. And what does he do? God, anybody but me. Anybody but me. And in the midst of the conversation, God gets angry with him. He's like, you're the one. Look, don't worry about all the things that you see in yourself that are too low. He's like, that's how I work. I take people that are weak and demonstrate my strength through them. 
And it continues. Look, when God's people are before one of their greatest enemies, what we see is that God takes a teenage shepherd like David over Israel's hand-picked King Saul, which meets all the world's standards. And how does the enemy overcome? Through this teenage, wimpy shepherd, David, with a sling and a rock. <laughs> like, God uses weakness to demonstrate his power and his strength. What do we see in the New Testament? You, you see the world's greatest missionary is an average at best orator with an eye problem that people regularly have relational conflict with in the missionary Paul, formerly known as Saul, and what happens through him, you literally see the gospel go to the ends of the Roman Empire. God's consistent pattern is that he shows his power through weakness. We see this in this passage, and then God teases this out literally through the rest of human history. And look, he still does this today. Here's what I believe. I believe this church is a demonstration of God showing his power through weakness. You know when the six families that moved here from out of state moved into this city? We moved in June of 2020. I know that a lot of us are trying to block that out in our memories. That was right smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic. That was not my plan. <laughs> I did not think about the time to go start a brand new church and a global pandemic came around. I was like, this is it. This is the time. This is it. That never in my dreams. If you would have known me before that, I never would have taken that chance but the ball was going too far down the hill. Like, this was God's plan. Demonstrating his power through weakness. Look, none of us, there's no like big name in here. <laughs> like, we're just a, a group of people that have placed a faith in a big Jesus and taking small steps, trusting, trusting that God is gonna demonstrate his power through weakness. And slowly, over time, I believe that God is doing that. This is his pattern. We see it all through redemptive history, but look, you see it now. This is how God works. So we see that God is consistent in showing his power through weakness. Here's the second one. Yet God is unpredictable in his timing. Unpredictable in his timing. Check this out. The passage begins saying that Isaac is 40. We see that in verse 20. It ends with these two sons being born when he's 60. Now, we read this, and Isaac prayed, and then God gives the two sons. What you have to recognize is that this was a prayer that happened over the stint of 20 years. We read this, and it's like, oh, great. Isaac prayed, God delivered, like a year's time frame. No, 20 years. 20 years. How long did it take Abraham and Sarah to see Isaac born? After they were in their 60s and 70s when they received the promise. 25 years. 25 years. 
We want God to function in our time frame. And a lot of times, we live as if God owes it to us. But God is unpredictable in his timing. He functions according to the time that he knows is best. So here's what we should think about this. When we try to hold God to our standard, it's time to repent. He doesn't function according to our timing. We function according to his. Now, it's okay, I think it's okay to ask questions at the same time, right? So can we just ask some questions, right? Like, Why? Why? Why does God consistently show his strength, his power through weakness? Why is God unpredictable in his timing? Let's start with the the last one first, all right? Why is God unpredictable in his timing? I I mean, honestly, this is highly situational. (laughs) That's not me trying to give you a cop-out. It's just reality, all right? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that you can find in the Bible. Sometimes it's to demonstrate his power, as we've just talked about. Sometimes it's, there's a delay in order to increase your desire for him. He knows if he just gives it to you right away, that is going to diminish the work that could take place in your heart that just grows a deeper yearning and desire for him. And so he does what's best for you, and he delays I mean, sometimes it's a repentance issue. You have a sin problem in your life. You're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying for these things. But if God just gives it to you, you'll never deal with a big threat that's going on in your life. You have all these things that you find in the Bible. But here's what I think you also need to make space for is mystery. You need to make space for mystery. I know that we want all the answers. But honestly, you need to make space for mystery. And this is really, it, it's great that we can have a God that is not completely uh, knowable in all of his ways to us. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, if God were small enough to be fully understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Like, it, it is good that we believe in a God that does give us answers to some of our questions, but also is big enough that we need to leave space for mystery because it shows us that he's truly bigger than we are and actually deserving of our worship. Like, it's good news for you. So, in some ways, we just need to be willing to sit in it. The mystery. I don't know. But I do know that my God is big. I do know that he's shown that he's faithful. And I do know that he is working all things for my good. And you can just sit in the waiting and trust. We do have a clear, more clear answer for why he demonstrates his power through weakness. We actually see this through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians twelve nineteen says this. But he said to me, as Paul is wrestling with this, He has this, what he describes as this thorn that's in his side and he's prayed three times that God would remove it and God doesn't remove it and here's why. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. 
Here's basically what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that God has allowed this thing to stay in my side. The reason that he works through weakness is to demonstrate his strength, but also to show that his grace is sufficient for us. Here's like my shortened Josh version. It's like for the idiots in the room, because I'm an idiot. He's like, basically God's saying, because I want you to see that I'm all that you need. I'm all that you need. Um, Mother Teresa, anybody know Mother Teresa? We, we still good there? Like, I know that she's, like, we're still good? We know Mother Teresa? Um, so, I mean, just an incredible woman. Like, one of the people that have given their life most away to the people that are on the margins and underserved here. I mean, you could list off statistics and it would just blow your mind, right? And so, as she was being asked about just, like, why all the hardship, why all the difficulty, what has she seen over the course of her ministry that God's just kind of been illuminating to her? Here's what she said. You'll never truly realize God is all you need until he becomes all that you have. Why, why the hardship, why the weakness, why the humility? Because God in the midst of it is showing that I'm fully sufficient for you. The things that your heart are prone to turn towards for answers to life's deepest questions are often left empty because what he's ultimately trying to show you is like, I'm enough for you. I'm enough. I'm an endless well that cannot be fully tapped. You come to me and all that you get is life and life and life. When you turn to other things, all you find is there's emptiness and void and it can never follow through, but that never happens with me. Why does God work out his power through weakness? Because he's trying to show us constantly over and over again, I am sufficient for you. Again, this is good for us. This is good. It is good that God demonstrates his power through weakness because he truly is all that we need. All right, so God is consistent yet unpredictable. He's consistent that he works his power through weakness, yet he's unpredictable in his timing. Both of these things work for our good. But we see this idea of consistency and unpredictability in the birthright story as well. All right, so we didn't read this part. I'll read this out for us so that we know what's going on. Here's what verse 27 says. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. If you are like thinking that the Bible is just filled of families that have it all together, like this one should like wreck your world a little bit. Like Isaac and Rebekah are bad parents, <laughs> right? Once when Jacob was cooking his stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff. I love that. That red stuff, that looks pretty good. 
because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Edom just means red stuff. Brilliant. 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. And here's how Moses depicts the whole entire story. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau and Jacob are a mess. I mean, just an absolute mess. Esau is just an embellished man, right? He comes in, he's exhausted, he's tired from hunting. He's like, I'm gonna die. It's like my kids whenever they're asking for us, I'm gonna die. I need a snack, I'm gonna die. He's like, he's not gonna die. Yeah, he's got the hunger pains, like the Snickers commercial. He's not maybe himself, right? (laughs) But he's not on the verge of death. He embellishes here. But even worse, we see that he doesn't value God or his gifts. The birthright means that he would be the head of the family and he would also receive the inheritance. And look, this is a gift. If we really tease this out from what we know about the scriptures, he would have been the one a part of Jesus' lineage. (laughs) But because he despised the birthright, he didn't value God, didn't value his gifts. He was willing to give it all away for lentil stew. Like, he's a mess. Jacob's no better I mean, Jacob takes advantage of his own brother and then profits off his loss. I, uh, I was watching a reel this past week, and uh, it was this reel of a, a guy that was, this is like supposed to be comedic relief or whatever, but um, he drives up to a fast food window and he's like, you know what, I'm going to pay for the person behind me. And they're like, oh, that's so generous of you. And he's like, you know, just trying to pay it forward. And then what happens next is he like just puts pedal to the ground, drives around the back and goes back through the line. And then he is like, I want 666 burgers. I want 700 fries. I want 800 milkshakes. Like just goes off and he pulls up right behind the person that he just paid for thinking like they're going to pay for me next. And like in some sense, that's what we see in Jacob here. (laughs) Like Jacob sees his brother coming in in a state of weakness, and he's like, this is the moment. This is the moment. This is it. I'm gonna capitalize on it. What we see earlier is that God has uh, said that the older will serve the younger. What we see in the actual birth story is that as Esau is being born, that Jacob reaches out his hand to grab at his brother's heel. What we see out of this is that Jacob just has this jealous, ambitious, envious spirit inside of him that he's willing to gain off of other people's loss. And it comes to fruition here. 
That's ugly. That's awful. And so here's our theme. God is consistent in loving and utilizing sinful people. God is consistent in loving and utilizing sinful people. Here's what God does. He actually uses these two men. Esau himself becomes a great nation. Jacob, what we see from him is that both God's people and God's redeemer come through him. And this is how, just as we talked about, God displays his power through weakness. We also see throughout all of the scriptures that God consistently loves and utilizes sinful people. Just over and over again. And we already talked through some of them. Let's just go back to where we came from. Like Moses, what we see is that he's described as outside of Jesus and the most humble man that has ever walked the planet. You know what happened in Moses' life? He didn't go into the promised land. You know why? Because he acted out of anger towards God. And God said the response and the discipline was that he couldn't go into the promised land. Like he was a sinful, broken man. David, the man after God's own heart, the one that God demonstrated his strength through weakness, adulterer and a murderer. What about Paul? Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. What was his goal in life before he came to know Jesus? He literally wanted to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth persecuting the church. Yet, who does God end up using to take the gospel to the ends of the Roman Empire? Paul. God is consistent in loving and utilizing sinful people. Again, great news for us. Yet, God is unpredictable in that he rarely picks the people you and I would. God is unpredictable in that he rarely picks the people you and I would. We saw an aspect of this in that God uses and displays his power through weakness. But in this story, we see that God doesn't follow the traditional order. Because God picks Jacob over Esau. That's what Genesis 25-23 says. The older will serve the younger. In Romans 9... Paul uses this to show that it's not human descent, but spiritual descent that matters. In Romans 9, uh, Paul quotes the Old Testament, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He then uses a prophet, Hosea, and here's what he quotes. I will, not call, I will call not my people, my people, and she who is unloved, beloved, and he'll be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. God's not confined to the traditional order that we have in this life. Instead, God is unpredictable in that he rarely picks the people you and I would. Um, what you end up seeing after God fulfills his promise in bringing about his people, the Israelites, 
is uh, they got really exclusive. Um, if you weren't an Israelite, you were really viewed as like just the lowest of the class, right? Um, if you weren't of the natural descent, the natural order. I mean, even after um, Jesus comes and we see the church's birth, like this is something that people still wrestled with. Like you had to become an Israelite. This is what we worked through all of Galatians, right? That you had to become an Israelite in order. You had to be like them. You had to do their practices. You had to go under circumcision to become part of God's family. And after you did all of these things and then trusted Jesus, then you could be part of God's family. Here's what we need to recognize. Um, Every, well, maybe I shouldn't say every one of us. Most of all of us, if it came to our natural descent, would not be part of God's family. I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, were not born Jewish. Yet God is unpredictable in that he rarely picks the people that you and I would. And so if this is how God's people and even the church have trended in that they think that they know who God would pick, then we need to be really watchful of our own hearts. Um, what I, one of the things I really love um, about our church um, in recent months is I, I see God bringing in more and more diversity into the life of our church. This is good. And I don't mean this in like, this is the trendy thing to do in the church. I mean it in like, this is God's vision for the church. When you look at the book of Revelation, what do you see is you see all of God's people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language that are brought in. Like, we want to be a church that we see people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language that's a part of here, not because it's a trend in the church, but by, because that's God's vision for the church. And so we need to be watchful of our own hearts in that we are not trying to place and have partiality and have favoritism of thinking that we know who God would pick because what we see throughout human history is that God is unpredictable and that he, would, he chooses the people that you and I never would. And so, can we just ask some questions again? <laughs> can we ask some questions, all right? How do we move forward? And like, how do we take what we see here that God is consistent and loving and utilizing sinful people, and yet God is unpredictable in that he rarely picks the people that you and I would. Like, how do we move forward in this? Here's where I think it starts. I think it starts with you personally, all right? Because I think here's what the first thing that should be worked in your own heart is that you are amazed that God saved you. What we initially think is like, well, yeah, like, I declared Jesus faith in Jesus, and so I'm, but like, I mean, who, who is God going to like bring in next? Well, you need to start with just an appreciation, <laughs> a personal appreciation. Um, we should see ourselves in Esau and Jacob here. 
there's no one deserving of the kindness and grace of Jesus. We are all a mess. Every single one of us have this sin problem deep in our hearts. And honestly, if we looked at our salvation with an appropriate, appropriate view of sin, here's what the right response would be. Really? Me? God, you've, you've called me? You've, you've given Jesus for me? Like, wait, have you seen what I've done? If you could have peered into my head, if you could have contemplated the motives of my heart, if you would have seen what I've done in the dark, really? Me? I'm a mess. And here's what, here's what we see in God. He'd like lean over like this. Maybe it should be like this. He was like, because he's big, right? So he has to come down to us. He'd be like this. He'd be like, yeah, you. Even with your greatest view of your own sin, pales in comparison to the darkness that I see inside of you. Yeah, you. What wells up inside of us? Gratitude and appreciation. How could you be so good to me? But secondly, I think it shows us that no one is beyond God's ability to save. How many times daily do we come across people who are like, unredeemable? Too far gone. No way. <laughs> Look, that was you. That was me. That was Paul. That was the apostles. That's any person that has expressed faith in Jesus. What the Bible tells us is that all of us were fully dead in our sin. Any conversion story is a miracle. Only worked by God. Who are we to confine our God into a box? I have um, some friends in my life right now. Um, one is here for school, um, pharmacy school, or not pharmacy, for, he's here for, um, to be a, a doctor from Egypt. Um, man, there's times that I'm like, I just, I don't know God. I read this story, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, him. Pray. Plead. I have neighbors that basically feels like they've written us off because they know that I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. It's like, I don't know, God. 
that I don't know. I don't know if they can. I, I think God is like is a pricking my heart. Is like, yeah, these. These are the ones. This is who. This, no one is beyond our God's ability to save. That's good news. It's good news. Now, look, all that I've been telling you about, we see in this passage, hopefully I've been able to help you see it too. But I believe all of this is actually intended to point us to Jesus. So can I just like bathe you with Jesus for a while? (laughs) Can I just read off a number of passages that like what we've just talked about, like all are like, the climax of everything that we've talked about is actually Jesus. Because here's what we see, all right? All of these patterns that we see in Jacob and Esau are definitively given to us in Jesus. Look, it is through Jesus that God proved his love for sinful people. Here's John 3:16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You want to know if God loves sinful people? Just look to Jesus. God's like, here's how much I love sinful people. I give you my son. Die in your place. It is through Jesus that we see that God picks the people we wouldn't choose. Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's prostitutes. That's the people that are like the worst of the worst. You could never associate with them. And so the religious leaders come and ask, like, why does Jesus do this? Jesus, understanding what, he's, what they're asking, his response is not those who are healthy, who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus goes after the people that we wouldn't pick. It is through Jesus that God demonstrates his power through weakness. Paul wrestles with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And what is this? He's a stumbling block for the Jews. He's too, he's too weak. He's not powerful enough. He's also foolish to the Gentiles and the Greeks. They want wisdom. They want this this incredible insight and that this would happen, that God would put on human flesh and die on a cross, foolishness. But here's what Paul says in verse 24, yet to those who are called, or God picks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wise, is uh, wiser than wisdom. I don't, I put that wrong in here. What does that say? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Go to, is there a second half to that? No, sweet. (laughs) And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Basically saying like, look, the foolishness of God, way better than anything humanity could come up with. The weakness of God, power beyond comprehension. It's through Jesus that God proves his timing is perfect. Here's what Romans 5, 6 says. For while we are still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
All of this passage is pointing to Jesus. This is how God works. God is consistent yet unpredictable. Let me, let me close with a story and then we'll be done, all right? Um, there, when I was in high school, um, the church that I was a part of was seeing a pretty big explosion of uh, growth that was happening. Um, God was just being incredibly kind. And so the church was outgrowing its facility, and so the church was coming together to try to raise money to build a new property in order to expand the reach that we had in the community and what God was doing. And so there's just incredible sacrifice that was happening, but there's one couple that has just stuck with me. Their names were Larry and Kim Harrison, and they also struggled with fertility problems. I believe they're about the age that I am now when all of this was going on. So they're like late 30s. They've been working and saving. They have tried almost everything when it comes to the like medical world in order to see God give them a child. They'd saved up a lot of money for like this one last thing. And in the midst of it, they felt like God was just laying on their heart everything that they had saved to give to this building of this new church. And so they, they gave the money with great faith. Um, they came up on stage weeks, maybe a m- months later, and it's a story that you just, like, if you're in the room, like, nobody has forgotten it. They got to get up in front of everybody and they got to share how they were pregnant. That God had given them a child. God was consistent in showing his power through weakness. And he was showing that he's unpredictable in his timing. And here's what happened. Um, there were like there was a wave. I, I was in the youth group at this time, and I could remember that there was a wave of people that were coming to faith. That there was a work of God that, like, I even as a high schooler, I could see like this is no like human thing. And what God was doing, He was just using no name people that were just demonstrating what God had demonstrated to them that God loves sinful people and uses sinful people. Like people that were just sharing the stories of conversion of faith that had happened in them. And like people were just being baptized. Like I, I remember seeing friends that like I never would have thought would have come to Jesus that came to Jesus. And he gave me a friend group that like apart from Jesus, look, y'all, we never would have been friends, right? Like, some nerds, y'all. <laughs> like, I mean, just like this friend group that God pieced together, and it was, it was beautiful. And what God was demonstrating, and I, I just, like, I think I just realized it this past week, of like, God is just, he was doing what he's always done. God is consistent, yet Unpredictable. Maybe the best way to say it is God is predictably unpredictable and that's consistently good for you and me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.